Welcome to the P&D Show. I'm Peyton. I'm Danielle. And today we're going to be talking about um, a new serial killer and an essential question and how that relates to our podcast that we're doing in English. So the question we chose was, what are the most effective ways to produce social change? So how we're relating this to our podcast is um, talking about serial killers with social change, we thought that like maybe bringing awareness brought social change to serial killers because um, back in the day they didn't, they weren't aware of all the warning signs and how to avoid just um, bad people in general, not only serial killers but other people like rapists and stalkers and whatnot. So by bringing awareness, we said that that brought social change, and so things like rape whistles got brought, got um, invented and got in, put in society. Um, avoiding white suspicious vans is a big one. Especially I, for kids. Yes, yeah. I <laughs> that know. was like a big one for me. My yeah. mom was like, don't go near vans. <laughs> well, I know growing up as a kid, if I like, was walking to the park and I saw a van. I would have a heart attack. Oh, I, I would just be like way more alert and I'd be a little nervous. <laughs> Dude, one time I like hid behind a tree because I saw a van and I thought it was following me. There was a white van like following me kind of home and I was on a bike and my bike pedal broke off and I was crying. <laughs> and my friend left me because she was scared. <laughs> no, I just looked at a tree. <laughs> so um, there's also like stranger danger. Instead of being really outgoing with every stranger you meet, you kind of are a little more suspicious of them. Um, curfews got in, put, in, like, put into place, like your parents. I know my parents have curfews for us. And I know that the federal um, government does as well. So try not to break those. <laughs> Um, there's the buddy system, which Peyton loves to use. She loves, anytime we go anywhere, she likes to have a person with her, which I think all girls do, just because girls are a little more, um, I don't know. I think it's also, like, a social thing, but it's also... It's mostly just girls who do the buddy <laughs> system. I've never seen a group, it's group kinda, of guys get up to go to the bathroom all together. Well, but I feel like it's kind of, like, been, like, in, like, put in society because girls are more of a target and we're a little considered weaker against, like, just solo, like, right, one-on-one with yeah. a man. But I think it's also turned a big social thing. Like, oh, bathroom break, every girl goes. <laughs> like, I wanted to go to the bathroom. Oh, okay, I'll come with. <laughs> yeah. Um, locking your home. Um, I don't know. There's, like, that stereotype where, like, the people in the South don't do it. But they also have a lot of guns down in the South. Um, True. <laughs> but, like, we used to live out in, like, a country home. And then we never locked our door. But now that we live more in a neighborhood, we lock our door now. The city. The, the town. City, the town. And then another big one is um, online. Like, when kids are online, you do not want to give away your personal information. Like, where you live or, like, anything like Your that. age. Real like you name. really, Yeah, you really don't want to give away anything. And I know my mom freaks out on my younger siblings when they're, like, talking to people in general online. Oh, yeah. Especially if they don't know them. And then last but not least is pepper spray. That's become a big thing, especially now that you can put it on your little lanyards. Yeah. I know that I see a lot of high school girls and just people with it in general. So, um, anyways, that's just some of the ways that um, our podcast relates to social change. How we like people are just bringing awareness to that so they can avoid um, bad situations. And how to like overcome the bad situations. Yeah. Last week we left you guys with a question of what serial killer raped and murdered 17 young males between 1978 and 1991 and actually ate a few of them. <laughs> and the answer is... Jeffrey Dahmer! 
Look at the height spike. <laughs> so this is probably Peyton's number one favorite person or serial killer. <laughs> whoa. Number one whoa, whoa. serial killer. <laughs> He's the most interesting to me because I've just like seen him like forever. Like I feel like I've just like known about him forever. For a long time. So, if Payne does a lot of the talking today, it's just because she's really, she was really into him, and not, not coming out really wrong, she's really excited to excited, finally talk yeah, about excited him. excited to talk about, there we go, that was a better way oh, to phrase God. it. <laughs> Sorry, that was my Ooh, bad. Just making me sound like I'm obsessed with serial killers. Gosh. <laughs> so, I think what we're going to do is just kind of um, go in, like, chronological order, kind of, like, just the beginning of his life, kind of the middle, and how it ended, I guess. And anyways, it should be pretty interesting. Um, viewer discretion is advised, or audio discretion. I don't know, because you don't really see anything, but... Yeah, listener discretion is advised, because Dahmer was a really sick man. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, there's some pretty violent and um, intense subjects in here, so just be ready for those. Jeffrey Dahmer was born May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and we watched a documentary on him, and his dad actually speaks about him. And he says he grew up a rather normal child while they lived in Wisconsin, but he was very outgoing. He described him as gregarious, and that means he liked to talk a lot. And he said he made friends with the neighbor boys, and he was always just a really outgoing kid. And then they moved to Ohio, and he started becoming, like, I think around the age of six, they said, and he started becoming a little bit more isolated and just um, an introvert. And so the parents really, like, pushed him to, like, um, get him involved with other people. They thought it was because of the move. And so they got him a dog. They let him um, – they thought that he just wanted, like, more human involvement. So they even let him name um, her, his younger brother, which his name's David. And um, – but, I don't know, things seemed normal. And then all of a sudden he start, became a teenager and – that's when he started, um, I don't know, he was also described as curious, too, very yeah. curious child. And so as a teenager, he would go and um, drive around and pick up roadkill. And he would take them to his backyard and dissect them. He was really curious about, like, the inside of the animals. And so, like, when you're, as a teenager, you hit puberty and your hormones start kicking in. And so then his sexuality started developing. And that's where they found, that's where he realized he was gay. And I, he had a kind of a hard time with that. But, and then in the documentary, it also says at 15 years old, not only did his, um, like, I mean, guys, I guess at that age are a little um, hormonal, but his actual, his fantasies started turning into violent sex. He started having fantasies of that. And so he also had one where he wanted to lay next to an unconscious man. So he had this plan where he was gonna, uh, he took a baseball bat and was gonna go hit a jogger over the back of the head, knocking him unconscious, and then lay next to them. Um, luckily, I guess, fortunately for the jogger that you normally runs, didn't run that morning, and he, um, Jeffrey Dahmer never attempted to do that again. But growing up as a kid, um, but growing up as a kid, he also had to, like, he was really, frustrated because he had all these fantasies but he couldn't act on them so he had to compensate so what does every typical 15 year old or teenager do 
They drink. <laughs> Just kidding. Not, a, <laughs> Just not kidding. a typical thing. Not a typical thing. Maybe like counseling. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he would actually drink. In the documentary, a classmate says that they saw uh, Jeffrey come in with a styrofoam cup, and in that cup was actually scotch. So at 8 in the morning, he'd be drinking to compensate for that. Um, His liver is probably not that excited. Yeah. I don't know. And then this, the, the, uh, the classmates just described him as like a really kind of like a class clown. He'd make jokes jokes at his own expense. There was one where they said that they hear somebody running up and down the hallway like with their arms flailing everywhere. And they were screaming like hurricane, lockdown, or alert, or something like that. And it'd be Jeffrey Dahmer. Like he was just pulled pranks all the time. But he was also a very slick talker. And he was considered, like, a model student when he actually wanted, when he was actually interested in the topic, he could be a straight-A student, which I thought was pretty, um, interesting. And then, um, also, being a slick talker, he started, um, being, like, finding out, like, how to, um... What's it called when you like sweet talk authority? Yeah, like he, know so, how to like talk to authority. Yeah, he le- started like practicing like talking to authority, and kind of um, being able to like sweet talk them and get them to feel the way he wanted them to feel and make manipulate them, them. Yeah, manipulate them, and he started practicing that at a very young age as well. Okay, so during high school, his parents were going through a really bad divorce, and so like he obviously would go outside and, like, try and, like, escape from that. So, he actually committed his first murder three weeks after he graduated high school. And so, with his parents going through a divorce, Dahmer had the house to himself, and he picked up a hitchhiker and invited him back to his house. Instead of, like, hitting him on the back of his head with the bat or whatever, he invited him back to his house for a beer. And then the hitchhiker, like, the hitchhiker went to, like, leave, and then Dahmer hit him in the back of the head with a... 10 pound dumbbell and then Dahmer then dissected dissolved pulverized and scattered the now imperceptible remains throughout his backyard and then after that nine years had passed until he would kill again oh my goodness so but nine years that's kind of a long time in between kills well I was watching this documentary and he said that he like was scared by it like he, he I'd be scared if I wanted to do that thing and that's like illegal here. No, yeah, he that's just bad. like he like he tried to like that's when he, like the nine year break, that's when he tried to control his thoughts and stuff. Oh. And so and then he Maybe just, he felt real t- really guilty. Yeah, over and it. I'm pretty sure he like I don't know where where he went, but I'm pretty sure he he like he went to Ohio or whatever or to college or something. Mm. And so he that's when he was like trying to control his thoughts. Wait, did he rape this guy too? I don't think so. Okay, so that hasn't progressed yet. I'm pretty sure I, he just, I'm pretty sure, well, he just, it's just, I think he was just trying to, like, learn how to do, like, kill, you yeah. know? Well, because I also know, like, he said, like, as he, like, with each kill and stuff, he, like, um, or as time passed, like, his thoughts got more and more violent. No, for sure. Because, like, each kill almost seemed like it got worse, like, for him. Like, he kept, like, progressing or, like, devolving further and further with each one. No, yeah. So then, his second kill, nine years later, was um, Stephen Tuame, or something like that. And um, he killed him in 1987, when Dahmer was only um, 27 years old. Um, so Dahmer picked him up from a bar and took him to a hotel. And then, Dahmer swears he doesn't, like, remember, like, actually killing him. 
So he, he like blames it on like a blackout. So Dahmer wakes up the next morning and he like sees um, Stephen just dead, right? So he like, he has no memory of killing him at all. But he's like, you can tell like Stephen has been beaten to death. So, well, beaten to death isn't really his style. That's exactly, yeah. Anyways, so it almost, oh, okay. Yeah, so Dahmer states he has no memory of what had happened. So he Did he do anything with the body after it was dead? It doesn't say that. It just says that he has no memory of what happened. But he he probably, like, dissolved him and stuff and, like, hid him. Well, yeah, he ha- well, he would have to. Well, obviously, if he didn't get, like, found yet. Yeah. So then, after Stephen, Dahmer killed two more victims in 1988 and one in 1989. He drugged and raped and strangled them. That's, like, that's when he, I think that's when he started getting into, like, the rape and that type of stuff. Oh, first rape victim. Well, first three. How, how old was he? How old were they? So this was 1988 and 1989, so he was 28, 29. No, wait. Yeah, 28, 29. How old were the victims, though? Because I, I know I think, he targeted pretty young people. But it said that they were in bars and stuff. Like, he would pick them up from bars. So they had to be, what, at least 18? But didn't he have some pretty young no, male victims No, he did. On? He did. And then, so that, so yes, he did. And so Dahmer was arrested, actually, for an incident at his um, job, the Embrasia Chocolate Factory, where he drugged and sexually fondled a 13-year-old boy. He was given a sentence of five years probation and a year work release camp. And was required to, rec- like, register as a sex offender. Mm-hmm. So that already happened. And he was already, what, five kills deep? Yeah. But they didn't know that. So they just knew that he, like, sexually... I'm surprised they didn't put him in jail for a freaking long time for even one kill. Because didn't they say... No, because this, this was only the fondling and stuff. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So then, after that, so that's, like, when, like, the cops kind of were like, oh, like, he's kind of weird or whatever, you know? But, like, he, like, can talk him... He talked his way out of it. Remember oh, when I told you about that? Slick talker, yeah. So yeah, like the boy like escaped or whatever, and like said that, but then he like got him back to his house or whatever. Remember oh. when I told you that? Is that this guy? I think this is this guy. Wow. But, okay. Yeah. Okay, so, um, after he was released, um, from probation or, or yeah probation, he got an apartment in Milwaukee. Despite having, like, regular meetings with his probation officer, he managed to kill four people in 1990 and eight more in 1991. Okay, were probations di- probation officers, like, different back then? Because I could have sworn they, like, checked the entire house. They, like, they, they're, like, watching you really closely or pretty closely. I don't know. But I, don't I, know. I do know this is, like, when he started having the acid bins. And the pictures, he used to take a, sh- like, picture of, ooh, what was the case there? Uh, like, he used to take pictures of the victims, and he had, like, Polaroids. And that's what the cops found. Oh, like, when he officially got caught? Yeah, so then, so, and then, what bugged me, because I watched a documentary on him, and he said, like, um, he got cocky with it. Like, he would get cocky with it, and, um, he would, uh, he would, like, keep skulls and genitals as, like, like a souvenir, like souvenirs, and he just like he liked that they were like close to him, and he loved that feeling so much. He took a skull to his work, and like left it in his locker. <laughs> so then he would like go check on it and stuff, and like he just left it there. So like he was not scared of being caught. Like he he knew what he was doing, you know. 
Okay, like, so when he puts them in acid, does that mean, like, when they come out, it's just strictly bone and they don't smell? Because I'm thinking, like, of, like, a half-rotted, like, skull. No, okay. In the locker Did you know? stinking really Did you bad. know? No, well, he put them in a jar. Oh. I'm pretty sure he put the skull in the jar. What? He must have a pretty big jar, because I feel like skulls are kind of big. Or either, no, I don't think he put the skull in the jar, but he used to put the genitals in the jar. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but skulls, he probably put that in the acid, and then... Once it comes off, you probably cleaned it. Like, you know, fossilize it. Oh. You know, like with, like, dinosaurs and stuff. I mean, he was a smart guy. Well, his dad was also really smart, too. Yeah. His dad was really, like, educated and stuff. So I wonder if he learned some of this stuff from his dad. Well, yeah. And then, so also in the documentary I watched, it was saying that, like, because he lived in an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. And he would keep, like, the bodies in the freezer and stuff. And then, so they started, like, people started complaining about the smell coming from his house uh, or whatever because obviously it smelled yeah so he like he just played it off as like the fridge and freezer stopped working and so it was just like the stuff was like um rotting in there or whatever but really it was people not like me i feel like do you think he'd have to have like an extra like freezer in his house then like specifically for them i don't know what he i know he ate hearts i know he ate a heart i don't know what else he ate though because I think he would just, like, take the heart out or whatever and then dissolve them. I know he would huh. yeah, he would cut them up and stuff, though. It was weird. Yeah, that's, that's really strange. So. Okay, so on July 22nd, 1991, um, Dahmer lured uh, Tracy Edwards into his home with a promise of cash in exchange for his company. While inside, Edwards was then forced into the bedroom by Dahmer with a butcher knife. During the struggle, Edwards was able to get free and escape out of, into the streets where he flagged down a police car. When the police arrived at Dahmer's apartment, Edwards alerted them to the knife that was in the bedroom. Upon entering the bedroom, the officers found the pictures of dead bodies and dismembered limbs that allowed them to finally place Dahmer under arrest. Further investigation of the home led to find a severed head in the refrigerator, three, three more severed heads throughout the apartment, multiple photographs of the victims, and more human remains in his refrigerator. A total, a total of seven skulls were found in his apartment, as well as a human heart in the freezer. An altar was also constructed with candles and human skulls in, the, in his closet. After being taken into custody, Dahmer confessed and began divulging the gruesome details of his crimes to authorities. So, with the altar thing in the documentary, because it, like, it was like an interview. So, they were interviewing him. And he said, um, like, because, like, the interviewer asked him about the altar, and he said that he liked knowing that they were, like, there, you know, still a part of him, and that's why they did that, and that's what the photographs produced for him, too. Like, just, like, the thought that they were there. And, you know, he was, like, weird. Like, you know, he, like, wanted them to be, like, his zombies. Like, he just wanted them to be, like, brain dead, but enough to, like, still be with him, like, um, sexually and, like, and, like, like that. Did you not know that? While well, they're still alive? No. So he he wanted okay. He I'm confused. Was, so he was trying to find a way to be able to preserve them enough so that they were like zombie like, so they wouldn't have like full brain function, but they would still be like. But there they'd with still him. be alive. Yeah, they'd still be there with him. So he just wanted to keep them brain damaged to where they were just like there, but not like fully functioning. Yeah. So he like tried to do that with like um. I don't know, but I know he injected them with, like, a couple of, like, um, different things. Like, he would inject them with stuff 
to try and, like, like, he was trying, like, a serum to make them, like, brain dead, kind of. But, like, still, like, functioning. Oh. Yeah. Well, obviously, none of those worked. <laughs> well, no, that's why, that's why he, like, that's when he, like, started, like, keeping the souvenirs and stuff. Oh. Okay, why not just could, find somebody that you love and, I guess, because he liked well, them he, mostly necrof- dead. Yeah, necrophilia and stuff like that. But then they'd still technically be alive. Well, yeah. And he also, he also liked, you know, the thought of, like, having full control over them. Oh. You know? So that's, I think that's why he wanted them, like, zombie-like. He likes control? Yeah, he likes to have the control over them. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. He's a whack boy. No, yeah. Oof. Okay. (laughs) So, um... So, he stopped killing in 1991, right? That's when he finally got officially t- captured. Yeah that's, and... yeah, that's when the cops, like, finally, like, went into the apartment and found everything. So, after he got sentenced for 16 life terms, um, he, I kind of just want to talk about, like, his prison life. Apparently, he used to taunt the other inmates, and the inmates did not like him at all. Because they thought he was vile and that uh, crimes he committed were considered atrocities. And so he did not have, like, any friends there. Even the guards, like, nobody there liked him whatsoever. Um, And they said that he would even kind of taunt them. He'd um, make, like, body parts out of his food and leave them there for people to see. And anyway, so... Basically, everybody in there wanted to kill him, and it was just a matter of time. And so his, um, one of the inmates was Christopher Scarver, and he hated Dahmer, like many of the others. And he saw an opportunity. Sorry, my little sister came in. (laughs) Um, So he got an opportunity where he was actually being unsupervised, and so he got arrested, like, iron bar from... Somewhere in the building, I think they said, like, a weight room or a washroom or something. And since they were unsupervised, he waited for Dahmer to be alone in one of the bathrooms. And um, then he decided to beat Jeffrey Dahmer to death. So he was killed in 1994 by Christopher Scarver. Um, And they said Scarver believes that the guards left them there unsupervised for a reason. The guards were more than okay with the fact that, um, that Dahmer would die. Because, like I said, like, he, nobody liked him. And he would taunt them. And so it was just really a matter of time before somebody killed him in there. And unfortunately for Christopher Scarver, I mean, I guess for, I kind of, I, like, I agree with that Scarver killed him. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't like it. Well, he was going to die in prison anyways. He had yeah. 99, what was it, 990 years yeah. I don't know. Like I that. just, if anything, yeah, I don't know. Scarver, though, he got um, an additional, like, punishment or term because for killing Dahmer, because I think they had to. I don't think nobody wanted him to give him, to give them the extra punishment, but they did anyways. And so, um, when making these documentaries and stuff, they found out a lot more information on Dahmer. Um just kind of that, like, of the 17 males, he mostly targeted African-Americans at gay bars, malls, and bus stops. He lured them with sex or money or, like, the hitchhiker with beer. <laughs> and 
um, gave them sometimes alcohol laced with drugs and then strangling them to death. Um, and then, like Payne said, they would engage in necrophilia with the corpses. He'd dismember and dispose them, keeping skulls and genitals as souvenirs. But like we said, um, some of his first kills weren't this extreme, and they just progressed um, as he got older and be right before to right before when he got caught. And then there was also, he loved to take pictures of the various stages of the murder process so he could relive the experience. But, so, I mean, that's just, that's Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> yeah. So, in the documentary, like, he said that, like, he doesn't want to blame his parents. Like, he hates that, like, people blame his parents, like, uh -huh. that I was watching. And, like, he was like, like, my parents had nothing to do with this and stuff like that. Like, it was all me. Like, I feel like he... Serial killers don't usually feel remorse, but I felt like he felt remorse for his parents, you know? Yeah. Because, like, a lot of people were going after and targeting him, or them, you know? Mm -hmm. For, like, why did you raise such a weird son and stuff? But, like... But the parents literally did, did everything it. they could. Yeah, so... That's why, that's why I think that's why I mean, that's aside from like... the divorce, like, I think that's what really sent him over the edge. But, like, when he was younger and they saw, like, oh, he's kind of not, he's, like, antisocial. So, they, they like, tried to, everything like, they could to, like, yeah. get so him I think that's, in I think that's why he didn't want them to, like, blame them. He wanted the, all of the blame on him. Which, I think, I think that's something that, like, a lot of people don't do. Like, just put the blame on the serial killer. They usually go, oh, it's the parents' fault and stuff like this. Yeah. Which sometimes it is. Sometimes it could be, depending. Like, if they, like, really abuse the kids, like, some, some serial killers, it's because of child abuse as a kid and their home life growing up that really pushed them to be violent when they're older. But, um, it also said that Jeffrey Dahmer kind of compared himself to Satan. Yeah. Because, like, he, that's just the way he saw himself. He well, saw that makes sense as, with the altar. Well, yeah, he saw himself just as, like, a horrible person and... But the thing is, is, like, he didn't feel guilty about it. It's like he, he just... But he, it's like, like, knew he knew it was it. wrong. Yeah, he knew it was wrong, but it was almost like he knew that it was just, like, out of his control. Well, I think that's why he stopped for nine years, because he tried to control it. And then once he did it again, well, that's when it just, like... I think he might have just given up or saw an opportunity that he couldn't waste or something. And that's just, like, when it, like, started, like... Or something triggered him True. to want to kill again. It's the triggers. Yeah, who knows? Like, the trigger for the divorce... And then, who knows what happened that triggered him to come out of hiding after nine years, but. True. And now it's time for the question of the week. <laughs> Take it away, Payne. <laughs> who committed um, 30 homicides in seven states between 1974 and 1978? And decapitated at least 12 of his victims. Ooh, he kinky kinky. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave away the gender. Ooh, they can Okay, Payne gave a hint. Um, but thank you guys for listening. We hope this wasn't um, too extra <laughs> graphic. Graphic. <laughs> we try to keep it like kind of PG thir thirteen. PG fourteen, maybe. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thank you guys. Um and let us know if you guys have any answers to our question for next week. Yeah. That's the P&D show. We out. P&D out.